you will. We're going to read from Exodus 32. We'll go old school and stay on our feet for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, this is in page 41 in your blue Bibles. And uh, if somebody could get the lights uh, turned up, it would be helpful for me as I read it. Thank you. Um, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please take this with you. This is our gift to you. Uh, we want everybody to have a copy of God's word at their disposal. So by all means, please take this. Uh, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on the both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp, but he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them on the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made, that they had made, and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water. And he made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. 
when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gates of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each side of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother, his companion, and neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might throw a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nate. You can have a seat. Good morning. My name's Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. And would you bow your head and pray with me before we get started here? Lord God, we come before you this morning and we don't do it lightly. We come before you asking for your mercy. We ask that um, we would see your kindness this morning. And as Nate encouraged us earlier, that it would be your kindness that would bring us to repentance. We pray that as we meditate on your word this morning as we look at this as an instruction for us that your spirit would move among us this morning, Um, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we would see you this morning. So we offer this time to you and we thank you that we can gather here. We thank you that we can do this as an expression of who we are and what our community is like because of your love and because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our walk through the book of Exodus this morning. And last week, we talked together about the priesthood. The, the institution of the priesthood, that God gave instructions to Moses to pass down to the people that, that there should be men, Aaron uh, and his sons from the tribe of Levi, that would serve him as priests in his tabernacle. And God gave instructions about what the priests were to wear, that their garments and what they would and their attire mattered in their service to him. And God laid out instructions for how these priests were to be consecrated. The ceremony that uh, all of Israel should, take, uh, uh, should participate in that would consecrate these priests and their service to the Lord. And 
Listen to these words again from the end of chapter 29 after God has given these instructions about the garments and and the consecration and the ceremony that was to take place. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And listen to this. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That language is familiar. Because what we have seen up to this point is that everything that God has done, every command that he has made, every instruction that he has given, every act of deliverance, provision, protection that he is engaged with on behalf of his people, all of it is pointing to this one goal that they would know that I am the Lord their God. You see, God made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. This covenant that said, you and your descendants will be my people. And that was a binding covenant. It was a legal covenant. It was God putting himself on the block and saying, this is what I am committing. This is what I am binding myself to you, how I am binding myself to you. But what we have seen over the last few weeks as the people of Israel have arrived at the mountain of Sinai is that not only was their relationship with God a legal one, but that God is beginning to make it an experiential one. That God is beginning to reveal himself to his people more and more and more. That God's desire is not that they just be in a transactional relationship, but that they be in a personal one. That they would know him like they would know another person, like they would know someone else. But what we are going to look at today and what the passage that Nate just read is that in spite of God opening himself up, in spite of God revealing himself more and more and more to his people, in spite of the fact that God is drawing near to his people in relationship to them, that his people will turn their back on him, that they will betray their God. When we talk about betrayal, it evokes a lot of strong emotions. It triggers experiences for us. It's hard to talk about betrayal, and it should be, because it's something that's so deep. It runs so deep. And as I look across this room, I know that many of us, if not all of us, have experienced different degrees of betrayal. You've had People you were close to spread rumors about you and say things that weren't true. People who have divulged confidential information that you have shared with them to others. People who have lied to you, deceived you. People who have walked away from you when you needed them most. People who have turned out to be the exact opposite 
of who you thought they were. Affairs that have happened. Many of us have experienced betrayal. And also many of us have been the betrayers. And so when we think about this story, as we work through this incident, this golden calf incident, what we need to understand is that the wounds of betrayal run so deep because those who betray us are often the closest to us. Listen to the words of Psalm 55. David wrote this psalm about a very personal experience that he had. He writes, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide, but it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. Listen to that language. There's that language of closeness, of of intimacy. And David goes on to write, my companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. And in this psalm, David cries out to God and asks God, to get angry on his behalf. David cries out to God and says, you know what I have experienced here and I want you to act with retribution on my behalf. David cries out to God in his experience of betrayal because he knows that God knows what it's like to be betrayed. This morning, we're going to look at this passage together, and we're going to do so with a sobriety. We're going to do so in a sense of fear and trembling, because what we are going to see is that a God who is transcendent and holy and is so big and incomprehensible has chosen in love and in grace to reveal himself to his people only to have his people reject him. And turn their back on him. Uh, Exodus chapters 32 through 34. uh, We're going to take this as as one whole section. As one block. And what we are going to see next week in chapters 33 and 34. We are going to see Moses intercede on behalf of the people. Make atonement for the people. And we are going to see God in mercy and in grace restore his relationship with his people. But before we get to that intercession, before we bask in the glow of that restoration, we need to stand face to face with the rejection and the rebellion this morning. Read with me verse one again of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses is on the mountain. 
Moses is hearing from God. He's communing with God. God is revealing himself to Moses so that Moses can come back and and, 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 and be a mediator between him and the people to tell them what God says, to show them what God is like. But apparently, Moses was away far too long. <laughs> Moses was away longer than what the people had hoped, and they were concerned about this. Because if you remember up to this point, Moses is their only connection to God. All of the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle where God is going to meet with his people, all of those things are instructions at this point. All of those things are plans at this point. Those things have not been instituted. They've not been built and they're not part of the daily life of the people of Israel. So as Moses is away, as Moses is gone, it's reasonable to assume that the people of Israel believe they have lost their connection to God. They don't know where he is. They don't know what has happened to him. Remember in chapter 20 of Exodus, as Moses was going up and down the mountain, the people were camped around this mountain, and there was fire and thunder and lightning. The terror of God is what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. And you remember what they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses was their connection. Moses was their go-between and Moses was gone. But there's also something else at play. And if you caught that in the way that verse one is written, not only is Moses gone, and not only are they concerned about his absence, they also refer to him as this guy Moses. This Moses fella that brought us out of Exodus. He's not, we don't know what's happened to him. It sounds like there's some contempt here. There's some distrust here. Maybe there's a sense of abandonment. This Moses who brought us out of, ex out of Egypt. We don't know where he is. Has he abandoned us? Has he left us alone out here? And in this sense of aloneness, in this sense of abandonment, in Moses' absence, they come to Aaron, his brother. And in the Hebrew, maybe it's more appropriately translated, they come against Aaron. They come against Aaron. There's a hostility. There's a, uh, a threatening nature here. They are demanding. They say, up, Aaron. Hey, Aaron, stand up and do this for us. We need you to do this for us. Look at verses 2 through 6. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a, a graving tool that made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation that said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they come to Aaron in Moses' absence. They've lost their connection to God because Moses is gone. And they say, Aaron, we still want to know God. We still want to worship God. We still want to be connected to God. Build us this calf. And a calf was a common idol image in the ancient Near East. This was something that was common. They didn't just pick this out of thin air. But what's interesting here is that the people weren't worshiping the calf in place of Yahweh. They were worshiping it because they wanted that calf to represent Yahweh. They wanted that calf to be associated with Yahweh's presence. So they broke that second command that God had given to not make an image, to not make an image of a created thing to represent the creator. And I want you to notice the parallels here of how God laid out the instructions for the tabernacle, how the people had been worshiping and connected to Yahweh up to this point with what we see here. They brought willingly their valuables, their gold to Aaron, just like God had commanded them to bring their best for the tabernacle and for the, for, the, for the construction of the tabernacle. This calf that they built was associated with the presence of God, just like the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was where God's presence would be. Aaron built an altar so they could offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to this image. And they feast. They feast they proclaim that this will be a feast unto the Lord, just like they had feasted on their way out of Egypt. The feast of the unleavened bread and the Passover. And the language in verse 6 is reminiscent of Exodus 24, that the people rose up early the next day and offered sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord, just like in chapter 24, Moses we read when, he, when God comes to reestablish the covenant with his people that Moses woke up early the next day to offer sacrifices in celebration of God's covenant. And then we also read that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is the same language in Exodus 24 of Aaron. And the other elders, as they get a glimpse of the glory of God, it says that they ate and they drank in celebration of God's glory and his presence. What is happening here in this act of idolatry, this act of fashioning this calf and creating a, a place of worship to this calf is that they are undoing everything that has taken place in the first 31 chapters of Exodus. They are going back systematically and redoing, undoing, and creating a new way to connect with God, a new way to worship God, a new way to experience the presence of God. They are taking their desire for God's presence into their own hands. 
And they are saying, God, the things that you have done for us, the ways in which you have provided for us to connect with you, we have a better way of doing it. We have a better way of doing it. And this feast that they, uh, that they take place in, there's connotations here in the Hebrew language that this was sexual in nature, that this was a drunken party. And what they had done here is they had built an image that represented God, but an image that said something false about God. That the God who had brought them out of Exodus, that had delivered them from the hand, had brought them out of Egypt and delivered them from underneath the hand of Pharaoh was a God that they could worship any way that they wanted and any way that they pleased. And what they wanted here was a drunken orgy. This is more than just good intentions gone bad. This is more than just a one-time mistake. This is something serious. This is something deep. This is something that revealed who these people really were. And it explains God's reaction, doesn't it? Look at verses 7 through 10. I'll look at verses 7 through 10. There we go. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and had worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, It is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation out of you. Do you get the way that God is talking about the Israelites now? He says to Moses, these people, your people, Moses, They are corrupt. They have turned aside. They're stiff-necked. This is derisive language. This is insulting language. But it's true, isn't it? This is what has happened. This is what God has experienced from his people. And no longer are the Israelites my people. No longer are the Israelites my firstborn son. Now they are objects of God's wrath. A wrath that burns hot. A wrath that will consume them. But notice that in God's wrath, God still intends to be faithful to his promise, doesn't he? His promise is not, I'm going to wipe these people off and forget about everything that I've ever said. No, he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out and I'm going to start over with you. You're going to be the new Abraham here and your descendants are going to be my people. God is still going to be faithful to his intentions. God is still going to be faithful to what he had promised generations ago. He's just going to do it a different way. 
You see, sometimes our temptation is when we are faced with the wrath and the anger of God to try to hide it or make excuses for it. But what we see over and over and over again in the scriptures is that the Bible emphasizes the reality of God's wrath and God's anger. The Bible makes no efforts to hide the fact that God is a wrathful God, that God is a God who gets angry. The biblical writers work so hard in the scriptures to paint the picture and to show that God is good to those who trust him. And equally so, God is wrathful towards those who reject him. Vengeance and retribution to those who have defied and rebelled against God is reality. It's true. It's not something that God needs our help to hide. God doesn't need to hire a PR firm to make himself look better. This is who he is, and God is not ashamed of it. God does not hide it, and neither do the biblical writers. But when we talk about wrath, when we think of wrath, we think of it in terms of seeing red, don't we? I mean, all we see is red. These fits of anger and rage. That when somebody acts in wrath and in rage and in anger, that it betrays that this person has no self-control. And often when we experience anger, when we burn hot, it's because our pride has been offended. It's because our identity has been wounded. It's because our feelings have been hurt. That's how we rage. That's how we burn with wrath. That's often why we get angry is because we have been inconvenienced. We have been put out. But when the scriptures describe God in human ways and in human terms, the scriptures don't imply that God has the same limitations that humans have. J.I. Packer wrote, God is only angry where anger is called for. God is only angry where anger is called for. God's wrath is always just. Each person and each people group who have ever experienced the wrath of God have received exactly what they deserved. Israel deserved to die because they turned their backs on the one true God. Look at verses 11 through 14. Look at what happens next. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out just to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever 
And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And we read this and we have to ask the question, is God still sovereign? I mean, can God get his mind changed this easily? Is God still, what does this say about God? Well, we shouldn't assume that God's intention was anything but to destroy Israel. This, I've read some commentaries and and they kind of present this as, well, this was God testing Moses. This was God just testing Moses and wanting Moses to act in a certain way. Well, that could have been part of it. But God is very clear here about what he intends to do. God is very clear about what his response should be in the face of Israel's rejection and rebellion against him. One of the things we are never welcomed into is the psyche of God. We are never welcomed into and invited to know the inner workings of God. What we do know is that God works out everything the way he wants it to be. He preordains everything exactly the way that he wants it to be, but he doesn't preordain how everything will always work. He doesn't preordain when everything will always work out or every person who will work it out. God is sovereign. God is in control. God's purposes and plans will always come to pass. The focus here on this passage is not whether or not God is still in control. The focus of this passage is that Moses is doing what God had called him to do. The focus is on Moses here. Moses is doing the thing back in Exodus chapter 3 that he refused to do. That he said, God, I can't do. How can I speak on behalf of you? How can I speak to the people? I can't say right things. I stumble all over my words. Who would trust me? Who would listen to me? And here we see Moses doing that exact same thing. Going to bat for the people. Mediating on behalf of the people. Interceding for the people. Boldly proclaiming to God, God, these are your people. These are your people that you brought out of Egypt. Showing concern for God's name and God's honor. God, what would it do to the Egyptians to see you just wipe your people out here? What would that do to your name? What would that do to your reputation? Abraham or Moses reminding God of his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God relents because of Moses' intercession. My question to you this morning, do you have a big enough view of God to be okay with this? (laughs) Is your view of God big enough to know that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is God? And yet he invites people like Moses and like you and like me to come before him and intercede. Look with me in verse 15. Then Moses went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. 
and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing, I hear. And as soon as he came down near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took, off the, ca- he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Moses pleaded with God to not act in anger. But when Moses saw what the people had done, what was his response? Anger and wrath and rage. And he broke those tablets. And that was symbolic of the fact that the people, they were committed to the work of God to the words of God, so they couldn't have them. They had chosen to walk away from God, to walk away from his word, to walk away from his revelation, and so they couldn't have it. Their connection with God had been broken. And he ground that idol up, and he scattered it, totally annihilated this image. But what is deeply hurtful to me as I read this is Moses' reaction to Aaron. He's beside himself. Aaron, why would you do this? What had to happen for you to lead the people to sin? Remember who Aaron was. Aaron was the priest. Aaron was supposed to be the high priest. Aaron was supposed to be the one who would mediate on behalf of the people. Aaron was supposed to be the one that would lead the people towards God. And Moses said, what have you done to lead them away from God? To lead them away from the worship of God. And Aaron's answer is lame and it's deceitful. And Moses doesn't even respond. He doesn't even dignify it with answer here. But look at what happens in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron, had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to get to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother 
and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. Another hard thing to read. Another hard thing to reconcile. But it accentuates the faithfulness of the Levites. Apparently the ones, the only ones, or not the only ones, but the ones who had stayed faithful in the midst of this. The ones who had rejected this idolatry and this image. The ones who were set apart for God's purpose. And if we're really honest here, This death penalty isn't extreme. It's not an extreme penalty for the crime, but it fit for this act of rebellion. They had fashioned an image that lied about God. They had worshiped God in their own way. And that's something that God said could not happen. We're going to save the rest of this chapter for next week. But as I was reading through this, I, I, I got this sense this week that something deeper is going on here than just a rebellion against God. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think that depth shows that this was a rejection of God himself. This wasn't just a rebellion against God's plans, against the way God wanted them to be and to live. This was a rejection against God himself. Since the arrival at Sinai, God had revealed more and more and more of himself. Not just that covenant relationship in the legal sense, but in a personal sense. He had opened himself up more to them, to meet them, to dwell with them, to know them so that they could know him in a personal and in an intimate way. They had a relationship with God like no one else had. And in Exodus 24, they had made a vow to God. And as Moses had relayed instructions from God to them, their response is, we will obey everything that God has commanded. We will live up to our side of the bargain. We will live up to our side of the relationship. They didn't just break a law here. They broke a relationship. This is Genesis chapter 3 all over again. Because if you remember God walking in the garden, communing with Adam and Eve, there's a closeness There's a relationship there. There's an intimacy that God had created them for, to know him and to be known by him. And what happened when they sinned? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from his presence. They created distance between themselves and him. In Psalm 106, David describes this He says, at Horeb or at Sinai, they made a calf and worshiped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull 
which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Again, this is more than just good intentions gone wrong. This is more than simply a mistake, a one-time thing that won't ever happen again. This here revealed their hearts. This here revealed who they really were. It revealed the proclivities of their desires. It revealed what they longed for, that they longed for something deeper, that they longed for a connection with God, but they wanted it in their own way. They wanted it by their own hands. They wanted it in their own time. Will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? This is where I want to close this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul is saying they had all these experiences with God. They had all of these things that God had done on their behalf for them. All of these things pointed to a bigger reality of who God was and who they were in relationship with God. God had moved near to them. God had opened himself up to them. And just because they were God's people didn't mean they were exempt from idolatry. Read on. Now these things took place as examples For us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. What Paul is saying here is that these people were God's people, but still they worshiped idols. These people were God's people, but still they participated in immorality just like all the other nations around them. These people were God's people, yet they tested God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They looked the gift horse in the mouth, if you will. They tested God and all of his provision. And these people were God's people, and yet they grumbled and complained against all the things that God had done for them. It was never enough. How could they do this? How could these people who've experienced so much of God do this to God? Now, these happened to them as an example. 
But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's easy for us to wrap our robes of righteousness and think, I would never do that. I'd never bow down to an image. I'd never worship a created thing other than the creator. I would never turn my back on God's love and his grace and his mercy. How could they do that? Well, because we could and because we've done. We know it all too well that this is possible, don't we? We know ourselves all too well, and we know our story all too well to see that over and over again, this has been true about us, hasn't it? None of us wake up one morning and say, I'm going to reject God. I'm going to move away from what God has intended for me. I'm going to worship other things, lesser things, than the God I know, than the God that has rescued me. But all of us have been in places where over time our convictions and our beliefs and our thinkings about the way that God has called us to live, about God himself, those have been challenged. Maybe by circumstances in our lives, maybe by people that we choose to listen to and have access to our lives. We know the sexual and the emotional Temptations that none of us wake up in the morning and say, hey, I I plan on doing this. But those little flirtations at work, entertaining the thoughts, pornography, the distrust and the bitterness that we allow to grow in our lives because the things that we're waiting on God for haven't happened. The life that we want the relationship that we want, the job that we want, the reality that we want to live in is not there yet, and we allow ourselves to just day after day after day just grow a little bit more bitter, a little bit angrier, a little bit more distrustful of who God is. We test God, that God gives and gives and gives and gives, but it's never good enough for us. It's never quite good enough. The community that God's given us is never quite good enough for us. The marriage that God has given us is never quite good enough for us. The kids are never quite good enough for us. The job is never quite good enough for us. In verses 19 to 21, Paul writes, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be in participation with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy Are we stronger than he? He's writing to believers in the city of Corinth who were still participating in feasts, in pagan feasts and pagan rituals. They were eating 
food that had been offered to idols. They were participating in these things, and they were saying, hey, we are strong. We stand up. And Paul says, if you think you stand, check yourself. Because this is not nothing. These are not benign things in our lives. These are not inconsequential things in our lives because everything that we worship, everything that we move our affections towards that is not God, there are spiritual powers behind that. There are spiritual powers that are arrayed against God and what he says is true, what he says is right, the life that he desires us to live. They are arrayed against the goodness of God and they want your destruction and my destruction because it will make God look bad. It will make God look bad and it will further their agenda and they seduce and they lure and they entrap. Pursuing these other gods is a betrayal of the one true God. But look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When we think of our hearts, when we think how easily we are lured to other things and to worship other gods and to allow things in our lives to be present, they over time, draw us away from God when we look and we can be afraid that around every corner of our lives is a, an opportunity for us to fall. Paul gives us encouragement here that you are not just a miserable sinner, but you have the Spirit of God. That no temptation is greater than the power that God has given us to fight it, to run away from it, to endure it. Sin is lurking at our door. We have to be aware of that. We have to know that at any moment we can find ourselves bowing down to a golden calf. At any time in our lives, we are prone to say, I've waited too long. I'm going to take this into my own hands. But God is faithful when we are tempted to be unfaithful. Amen? Praise God that God is faithful when you and I are tempted to be unfaithful and in his mercy, in his grace, and in his presence, and in, in his power, he comes to us and he draws to, near to us and he dwells with us that God will never leave us, that God will never forsake us. Next week, we're going to bask in that. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to rejoice in that. But this week, we need to sit in the reality of why intercession and restoration was necessary. And so as we come to our time of communion, maybe you need to spend a moment in reflection. As Paul encouraged in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, 
maybe you need to take this moment and examine yourself. That before you just come up here and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice, like you do every week, examine your heart. Ask God to search you, to make known to you, where is that area in my heart? Where is that area in my life that's gradually leading me away from the worship and the devotion to the one true God? Where is your heart distant this morning? Where do you feel disconnected from the Lord? What other God are you chasing? So as I pray, as the band comes up, I want you to take a moment. Take a moment in silence. Ask the Spirit to meet you there. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask God for the power to step forward, to step out, the courage to step out and to receive this help in time of need. To rekindle in you the love and the affection of Yahweh, the one true God, and to do a work in you to lead you back to him where you have walked away. If you need some prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Pastor Nate would love to pray with you. Brother Tony, love to pray with you. Jody, my wife, others. If you need that, let us do that for you. But as you come, and as you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the juice, know that this is why Jesus died. It's because we could never live up to our end. And left to our own devices, we will always turn away. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise be to God. Father, we ask that you come to us in this space through your spirit. We ask that you stir up in our hearts a revival. That we would see that we're not just the wretch, we're not just the miserable sinner, but that we are loved by you. That we have been called by you into a reality that is so much better than what we could ever imagine. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we are far from you. You know where we are entertaining thoughts and ideas that are contrary to you. You know where we have set up idols and images in our lives that say something that's not true about you. And I pray in these few minutes here that you would make those known that you would produce in us a repentance in response to your kindness and your love and your grace for us in Jesus Christ.